HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're delighting in the creepy, the spooky, the skin-crawling aspects of food history and culture. Give yourself over to man's more hedonistic tendencies and you wouldn't be making it to the great beyond. The Sin Eater's job was to ensure that you did. In modern horror, audiences have been captivated by the isolation, mystery, and terror of rural life. And so one of these preparations is, is actually taking oak bark, stuffing it into a cow skull, and burying that cow skull in a creek for a year. I would argue that their evil went hand in hand with their marketing strategy. I'm not saying they had an excuse, but in order to make bananas work, they were deluded. They had to do these terrible things. Listen to Meat and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one of your hosts, Darren Bresnitz. This week, we are so excited to be sitting down with Chef Sean Brock at the Arclight Cinemas Hollywood during the West Coast leg of his cookbook tour for his new book, South, Essential Recipes and New Explorations. It is an inspiring and informative chat about the ingredients, traditions, and techniques and some of his favorite stories behind the Southern food he loves. There's also an incredible story about Bill Murray helping him plate a dish. Then we dig into the archives with Michael Davies, who is a Grammy-nominated roots musician. Talks about being an advocate for Brooklyn's bluegrass scene, and he gives us some tracks from his two album set, Orchards and Violence. So sit back. Relax and enjoy Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are in the green room at the Arclight Theater in Hollywood, and we are with Sean Brock, legendary chef of the South, who wrote a book about the South and its food. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. It's so weird to be in Hollywood. Hollywood. That is a long way from Appalachia. Yeah, I mean, but that's, if I haven't heard that story from the mountains of Appalachia to Hollywood a thousand times. <laughs> like Jessica White. Yeah. Um, so this is your second book, and your first book, Heritage, you know, received a ton of critical acclaim. It was a big success. So when you set out to write the second book after the first one's done so well, is there freedom? Is there pressure? How did you approach it? Well, the first book was kind of a roadmap for the future. Looking back and figuring out what used to be um, grown and, and, and eaten and cooked. And um, now this book is the product of that that work of, of bringing all those things back. And it's um, asking the question, what, what can we do with these ingredients now? What's the future of these ingredients? Well, that makes writing a, yeah. a book very easy. Um, plus, this one is... It has a lot of recipes in it that are... Recipes that I've been working on for over, de- you know, 15 years. So it's fun to share those with people. I mean, this is a very personal journey for you, and there's a lot of people who from family members to mentors and things like that who help guide you have a better understanding of Southern food. And so how do you see this book as a guide for people who may have their own preconceived notions or think of Southern food in a specific way, other than what we maybe know, that it is healthier than it than people think it is, or that it, you do use fresh ingredients? What's a different perception you want people to walk away with after this book? I hope it's the same perception that it's given me and that's that I don't I feel like now more than ever I know nothing about southern food I absolutely know nothing because now I'm starting to realize the scale of it and I'm starting to realize how many traditions haven't even been born yet because we're we're barely 250 years old as a country right we we, this is a this is a very young country and, and we have so much more to discover You talk about the cuisine and that discovery, and one of the things is that it's a common thread um, between people. And you talk about these three factors of the people and the food and the culture experiences and the history that brings it together. And what do you notice it as a young cuisine compared to maybe like French and Italian cuisines as a common thread for our culture of where it's been and where it's going? So if you go to the book on page 11, there's a map of continental Europe, Western Europe, and then there's a map of the South, kind of pulled away from the United States. It's kind of interesting to look at it as its own country for a moment, beside that area of of Western Europe. And the moment I started seeing it that way, it just helped me realize that it's not this monolithic cuisine. It's so many different cuisines throughout these little tiny micro-regions. And those micro-regions are unique because of the formula that makes up cuisine, the three Ps, people, places, products. Mm -hmm. And 
that also shows that the future's going to be so different. I mean, Southern food in 10 years is going to be, it's going to be completely different. And I think the flavor of a place is dependent upon those things. And if you look at the, the demographics and racial compositions of each, of each city in 10 years, that's the flavor of that place. And that's going to, that's going to evolve constantly. You know, the products and the places can sometimes be fixed of just what the region allows to grow, but the people change and the roles in it. How do you see the people and how they've shaped history and, and your role in that um, and its influence on Southern cuisine? Well, those people bring a couple of important things. They bring the ingredients along with them because the ingredients that you're born into, like the ingredients that I was born into, um, the earliest foods that you eat, you form these narrow pathways that are your first flavor memories. And then those are the deepest ones because they're connected to your family and they're nostalgic. And so we then kind of crave those things no matter where we go. And so every culture has that. And it's the same with music. It's the same with art. Every culture has those things that they crave that are tucked away in their subconscious. And they're just, it's part of, it's, Part of your DNA, and those flavors, and I'm specifically speaking about flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, those flavors, when they are mashed up with the flavors that are there, with the ingredients that were there already, the native ingredients, but also the ingredients that you bring with you, so that you can grow your food. Those things, once they end up on the plate, that's the food of that place. And a great example of that would be where I'm from in Appalachia the in the in the coal fields of Virginia and there the major influences are Native American Cherokee uh, German and Scots-Irish mostly German um, than Scots-Irish and so you see sour corn appearing on the table a sauerkraut of corn and when I grew up, I thought that was, I thought everybody ate that. You know, I just, to me, it was, um, it was our food. It was the food. And even as I got older, you know, to me, it was the food of, of my region. But it's a German tradition of, of fermenting and making sauerkraut with Native American ingredients. And then that only exists there. I don't think you're going to find sour corn in Germany. No. I mean... The regionality also plays through your book in some of the different grids and the ways that you show, you talk about the hams and the shrimp and grits. How did you narrow it down even to the recipes that you have in there um, when you could have done probably a whole book on shrimp and grits and just ham itself? What was the important recipes that you felt that you had to share that really stood in for maybe the recipes that couldn't quite make it in? That's something that I had to ask for a lot of help with um, because... There was so... Uh, this book could have been three times the size. Easily. Oh, easily. Yeah. And going through and, and starting to cut things is really tough. And so that involves a, a large team because it takes many perspectives and, and many ideas and many opinions on, on what's important. So it, it's just like writing a song. It's just like creating a dish you have to edit it down to 
um, its simplest form so that it can be more easily understood. A lot of respect is paid throughout this book um, to both the traditions and both the ingredients that are grown. And you you do a lot with focusing on um, seasonal and local food, but it's not just about a talking point. It really is about people looking inward and reconsidering how they get their food, where their food comes from. Sometimes that can be considered a luxury, that people can't go to the farmer's market or, or even a matter of affording it. What would you advise to people who want to practice some of what you preach in the book, but maybe can't go to some of the extremes of, of going to their farmer or, or, or you know buying boutique lettuce or turnips and things like that? I hope they don't do any of those things. Honestly, <laughs> I, I hope they, um, I hope they grow it themselves, like we did, or find neighbors that that grow things. I mean, in my neighborhood in East Nashville, there's a guy who grows food in his backyard, and then he just he just writes on a huge cardboard sign whatever it is he wants to sell that day, and that's what you stop and get. And that's how, if we start with this, the, the smaller units of of community. Um, that's just how I grew up, and I think that's where it can start. And you know, the the idea of growing your own food um, obviously can only exist when you have um, dirt to put it in. Um, but my my advice is, if you can't do that, my my advice is to spend your money wisely. Consider each dollar a vote, um, because the, every dollar you spend is is supporting that farmer in a way that will allow him to then grow on a larger scale, which allows for the price to drop. Uh, and, and also, um, I think, just buy the best that you can afford. It really is about building this community and creating this new ecosystem, both as, you know, you buy the green beans from someone who grows it, then you pickle them, you give it to someone else, they maybe use them in their restaurant. Um, why or how has Southern food really come to represent the building of community and community ties? Well, some most of the traditions that I enjoy the most are the ones that I recall as a kid being these enormous communal activities, such as sorghum potlucks or the time of year where you make the apple butter in lots of places. There's a hog slaughtering um, time of year and the existence of a community cannery. And these things allow us to, to stay in touch. They allow us to um, use food as the common thread, um, which is what I think its greatest, greatest um, ability is. There is also this dedication to time both to enjoy yourself in cooking and the way things that that people make stuff and I loved that part uh, where John Egerton talks to you about the the biscuits and about roll the cold dough 500 times for family and a thousand for the president <laughs> which I thought was a really funny quote but also spoke to the the time it takes to really do something right and to really put the effort into it but also to slow down and to think about what you're cooking, what you're buying, how you're serving it to people, and how that transfers into this tradition. Um, we move so quickly these days. 
how would you recommend people carving out the time to make this food or to approach this type of cuisine? Well, I, I want to talk about the importance of that and the importance of how food can be the, the tool that allows us to ponder and, and consider and to think about the cultures that provided it and the history of wherever your place is. You know, when I eat uh, Pop and John, you know, I'm thinking about how screwed up slavery was. And that makes me feel really terrible. And that's good. That's, that's a good thing that I'm, that I'm feeling that, that guilt. Um, because that's what we should be thinking about. And we sh- should be talking about these things. And food allows that. And so if you're, no matter where you're eating, if you're at Taco Bell... You know, have just this moment to to think about what that culture is like. Amazing. Well, we're going to take a quick musical break, song from the archives, and then we're going to come back here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Precarious.
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello, and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are with Sean Brock talking about his new book. And the book talks so much about traditional techniques and history and about finding the right one that's for you. I'm thinking about how many different ways you talk about cooking over fire in this book and how you sort of say there is no wrong way or right way. Here's how I would do it, but you got to be comfortable with your own mode of fire cooking and what makes the most sense for if you have a giant backyard or you have a small Weber. It doesn't matter as long as you make the effort. Um, how do you want to inspire people to get out of their comfort zones when it comes to these types of, of cookings and this approach to making food? The only way you're going to get better is to make mistakes. And mistakes are such a gift because that's where a lot of my greatest discoveries have, have come from. And also... If I think one of the great lessons that I've learned over the past few years is the power of courage and just to be able to encourage someone or to find courage within yourself. You, we're, we're so capable of so much more than we, than we lead ourselves to believe. And if you can start thinking that way towards food, hopefully you can look at the rest of life that way. I know you talk about the bologna in the book as something that is going to take a bunch of times to make and you're going to make some mistakes at the beginning. Were there any other recipes that are in the book where if you read it, you go, I can never do this. And you felt the same way <laughs> at the beginning. And now you read it and you go like, I too was in your shoes at one point. So in, in all honesty, I probably, I don't, I can't imagine myself making bologna at home after, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's one of those things, but I've made it so many times, hundreds and hundreds of Is times. Is it just the idea of mounting Mount Bologna, of just like starting at the <laughs> bottom being like, I don't know if I can climb you again? <laughs> you know, it's, I don't know. It's like, it, but the, the important thing to remember, just like how to make your own butter and how to make your own vinegars is the learning that happens as, as you're going along. And... Making your bu- making your own butter sounds sounds difficult. But I mean, the really making the butter part is one of the longest recipes in the book, and <laughs> and the first thing they start with is uh, sourcing milk from the right cow. Yeah, exactly. So you gotta have a milk guy first. Yeah, you gotta have a milk dude. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's it's um. I mean, you started off with all these as just being an idea and and just 
being like, can we do this? How do we how do we take it and we do it one way and then we refine it and we refine it. And that's I think what's fun about this book is this is a collection of all those things that I've spent hours and hours and years and years and years trying to obsessively master. Even if it's as simple as a fried green tomato. I've been trying to master that since I was a teenager. And now that recipe's in this book and that will save you so much time and so much misery. <laughs> I did it. I did it here. Like, you can try it your own way, but trust me on this one. Um, one of my favorite uh, recipes you have is the sack sausage, which you could also put in a, a sock as right. well. Depends on, depends on uh, how much money you got, I guess. Yeah, but I, I love that because going back to the butter, you talk about buying a specific butter muslin that you're only, you know, cheesecloth that you're only going to ever use for that type of thing. But it goes, yeah, or you could just go go to the 99 cent store and get a sock. Yeah. But it's really just about getting out there and trying. Yeah, it's about doing it. And, and thinking about the people who did it before you and like what how important it is to carry on traditions of doing things by hand, like making things with your hands. That's, that's what it's all about. Um, Speaking of tradition, the history and the credit, I know we talked in a little bit, but it does play a lot of a, a lot in this book. Like, any time someone taught you something or you learned under someone, um, you give them a shout-out. You know, like um, the grilled asparagus that Brian Baxter taught you or something that your grandmother taught you. Like, you never just say, I'm now the master of this. Um, why is it important to... Not to say you didn't invent it, but to give credit where credit's due um, with this type of book and this type of cuisine. I think it shows humility and vulnerability. And, you know, it's, it, that, I hope, encourages other people to seek these kinds of um, techniques and recipes from other people and realize that the, the, one of the best things you can do is, is listen and one of the best things you can do is is try and understand what other people are getting excited about and what other people are good at. And that's how I've spent my entire career. The book is big. It, there are so many recipes. And in reading it, when I thought I got to one section, I was like, oh, how many recipes can we fit into this? There's ones where there's not even photos, just recipe, 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 recipe. <laughs> but everyone gets the same respect. Like, I, I feel that every recipe could be your favorite, but you do talk about the shrimp and oyster perlu, which I'd never heard of before. And you say it's 100% your kind of dish. So if you love this cuisine, you love all these dishes, how does something like this rise to the top of being a favorite dish? What does it mean to you? Mm -hmm. And and why does a dish out of a cuisine that you have built your life around become a favorite? There is. I noticed this when... I listen to certain songs. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it just hits you square in the chest, and like your eyes start watering. It just so that that is like one of the most um, incredible things. And when a dish does that to me, I pay attention, and that makes me want to share it with other people. You talk about these recipes as stuff that you served in your restaurant and some of them are for home. How do you draw the distinction of this, what some people could say rustic, but some people could say refined? Like, where do you say 
this is something that's restaurant worthy and this is something that you serve in the backyard on a Saturday night? Well, I've always had one modern restaurant and and one simpler, more casual restaurant. And I honestly believe there's, there's room for both. And, you know, diversity is what it's all about. And there's seven days in a week, so yeah, plenty of time to, to play. Um, I think understanding what you are capable of doing uh, is really, really important. Understanding, because if you try to take on too much and if you try to do too much and you fail, then you're going to get really upset and not have a good time and probably not try any more recipes. Do you people get frustrated with these recipes sometimes and ever reach out to you for encouragement? Oh, all the time. The hot sauce recipe in the first book, <laughs> I get three or four messages a week um, when people see the mold forming, but that's the secret to the flavor. Is it the mold? Mm-hmm. There are so many great stories in this book, and I love the one with you and David Chang and Alan Benton. Um being out in nature and then cooking and things like that. That's the type of story where you go, I'm giving up my job. I'm getting into cooking. You know, I'm just going to go out and forage and try and get a couple buddies just to have these types of moments. Um, what other stories came out from this book and putting it together? What are the stories that stand out for you in this journey to, to writing this book? Gosh, that was a really good one. That, that was, was a really good one. That was a really, really, really good one. Um, there's so many that that I didn't get to write about. Um, there's so many that I look forward to writing about uh, in the future. Um, like, for instance, the um, uh, swordfish with green gumbo. Mm-hmm. Um, I was having trouble plating that dish. And just so happened um, Bill Murray was at the restaurant while I was shooting the dish and he came over and was like what are you doing I'm like I'm having trouble plating this dish I just can't make it look right he was like well what are you trying to do I'm like I don't know I just want it to look cool and he goes let me see that thing and he starts plating it and he sits back he plated the dish um, and he laughs and he goes see it's done made me laugh and I'll never forget that because he's like I, I know something special when I get like a little chuckle out of it. It's like when I look at art, it makes me laugh. It's like, that's my favorite. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, you're carrying on a lot of tradition in this book and in the restaurants and the food you serve. Do you feel a certain weight on your shoulders? Do you feel a responsibility to be this collective information? And I know that you've physically done it with the preservation of seeds and growing plants and things like that, but now you're passing on knowledge. And how much responsibility weighs on you to get that right or to get as much information out as you possible? Because you mentioned that you had to edit some stuff out. Do you lose sleep over the stories that you couldn't tell or be like, I need enough time to write another book and the third book and so on? You know, um, being in recovery and, and, and having a child has, has helped me realize what's worth worrying about. And... Um, this moment in my life, I don't want any pressure on my shoulders. <laughs> um, I just, you know, I'm, I'm glad I got to to have a big chunk of my life where I was able to dedicate um, all of my energy towards these things. But but now, 
my favorite thing is to encourage the next generation and to watch these things happen naturally. It's just been absolutely incredible. With all the research and everything and, and going through all this, what do you at the end of the day consider to be the most important or your favorite staple of Southern cooking and why? What tells the story the best? Well, that's a tough one because it depends on where you are. But I do think that cornbread is the one that you'll see on the most tables throughout the micro-regions of the South. And that cornbread, wherever you're at, think about the color, the texture, the flavor. Um, does, it have, does it have sugar? Does it have flour? Does it have a crispy crust? Is it more cake-like? And those questions and that kind of curiosity will lead you down a path where you start to wonder about the cultural influences of that place and why that cornbread is that way. Um, there's five different recipes in the book, and that's something that hit me when I started opening Husk in various cities. And those different skillets of cornbread in each place had to appeal to the nostalgia of the people who, who were from there. Wow. So not one cornbread for all of Husk, but a cornbread specific to the region. Yeah. I know at the beginning you talked about how we've barely scratched the surface. There's so much more to learn. But in writing this book, what is the one thing that you learned that surprised you the most or shifted your perception about what you thought about Southern food? Well, I would say that for me, um, the thing that I learned the most is I, I just, I, I love thinking that I know something and then realizing that I know nothing. Um, because I've spent a big chunk of my life studying Southern food. And when I finished this book, I just, I, I realized that there are so many more books that need to be written. And that's really exciting for me. Um, just to, to know that for the rest of my life, I can concentrate on this one region and just explore with curiosity and, and see what the, the possibilities are and what the discoveries can be of each place. I think the biggest takeaway for this book was how much, how excited I am for the, for the future and seeing what Southern food's going to be like in a decade from now. And that just, that makes me really happy. Amazing. Well, congratulations, Chef. Thank you. The book is South. Where can people get it? Where can people follow your adventures? ChefShawnBrock.com. Beautiful. <laughs> well, we have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Baby, when you close 
love you so. Oh, my words. Oh, my words can't describe my Julie. How I feel about you, Feebly. I'll try to show you, surely, Feebly. It just so. Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. 
Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. All right. Michael and crew, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hey there. Uh, you want to go around the room and introduce yourselves? Sure, absolutely. Here we got, uh, uh, on the mandolin we have, we got Dominic Leslie and uh, Jen Larson. She's going to be uh, singing here with me. And on the bass, Larry Cook. Uh, welcome. From across the room. I mean, across the trailer. Um, I'm so excited you're here because the record you just put out is such an amazing concept that, like, I think people kind of, like, dream about that an artist would do, but you actually did it. Um, for those of you who don't know, it's called Orchids and Violence on Nonsuch, which is equally just, like, one of the best labels that's ever existed in the history uh, of labels. I agree, yeah. Um, just if you are, are into, like music that is just good across all type of genres just like just go listen to everything they've ever ever done yeah they've, they've got a pretty amazing output over the last uh, you know 50 years or so it's it's pretty inc- it's pretty incredible um but what you've done and just to, to for the people who um, are not prepared for this episode um you took pretty much the same song and did it twice yeah, it's the same 12 songs. I started with 12 uh, mostly traditional songs or you know like old time and bluegrass and you know old murder ballads and whatnot and uh, I did the same track list on two discs. Uh, so the first disc is like straight ahead bluegrass, which is pretty much what we're going to be playing today. And then, and the uh, the second disc, I did the same songs in the same order, but it's kind of an experimental electric album. So I reinterpreted them kind of from the ground up in some cases. And I'm sure that you'll probably get this question asked to you through all the interviews. But like, where did this come from, and, and why <laughs> did you feel the desire to do this? Well, I. You know, um, I came out of bluegrass music. My, that's something I grew up with. So it, it, my parents played fiddle and banjo, so it was in the household growing up. And and uh, so, you know, it's always just been a part of, of you know, who I am, as, you know, personally and, and musically and, and something I've, I've really gravitated back to, in the, especially in the last 10 years of my life or so. I just really ended up doing primarily bluegrass music. But, um, you know, along the way, it definitely gotten way into other forms of music, you know, experimental music, jazz, noise rock, mm-hmm. um, you know, all these, uh, you know, different influences are, are also part of me. And uh, so when I, I wanted to record an album and it was trying to figure out what sort of album I wanted to do. And I, I knew I wanted to do something that really kind of hung together as a piece. You know, I didn't want to just kind of record a collection of tunes and kind of have it be a bunch of singles. So, uh, and I didn't want to do sort of a mishmash of, of too many influences. I wanted it to be kind of about one thing. But then I couldn't really figure out what, you know, whether whether to <laughs> kind of do the traditional bluegrass thing, which has really been a big part of, you know, what I've done in the last 10 years, or or express some of these kind of more um, experimental ideas. And so this was a solution. This double album concept was, was kind Someone of... Someone called a solution. <laughs> <laughs> Someone called, like, masochistic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, it was an opportunity to take these old songs, which you know, many of which have been around for for hundreds of years. Uh, who knows how long? Some of these old murder ballads are you know, really hundreds of years old, and have had a lot of uh, life. You know, even before bluegrass music was a thing, and uh, you know, so they just you know they they get performed in in the the style of of whoever's performing them. You know, whether it's you know seventeen fifty or. 1900 or 1950 or, or now and you know everyone just kind of brings their own um, experience to it so uh, it's just kind of taking part of the process of you know people have for years you know, hundreds of years continually reworked these songs so just getting to explore them in 
you know, very much in the bluegrass tradition, uh, which, which, you know, again, I, I love and, uh, primarily work in, um, you know, with, with a, with a band of musicians that I just really wanted to get together in a room, but then also, find, yeah, take those same songs. That, sorry. Do you find that every time you explore a song or re-explore it, it extends its life and gives it a new a new lease on it? Well, I believe that's that, that's what these songs are meant for. You know, this, these songs have been around for hundreds of years. You know, they're 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 enduring because they have a way of uh, they, they are sort of a template or a container for for the experience and the emotions of whoever's seeing them, and so. Uh, you know, everyone who sings these songs, it's, it's a folk tradition, and so everyone sort of brings their own perspective to it. And, um, you know, these are uh, two musical perspectives that I was able to present uh, <laughs> on, this, on this recording, you know, uh, the bluegrass and the sort of more experimental side, which also gave me an opportunity to, to, to kind of explore the contrasts uh, and versions and kind of a good puzzle for me to solve. <laughs> which I think we definitely want to uh, address, but because you, you said it twice, um, murder ballads. Uh, what makes a good murder ballad for the uninitiated? <laughs> oh man! Well, there's so many murder ballads to choose from, and, and is that like a can? I mean, I, I, is that a canon? Yeah, music? it's a genre. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's there's a bunch of great ones. You know, uh, I recorded Pretty Polly uh, on this on these albums. Um, you know, the Knoxville Girl, Omi Wise. Um, you know, Banks of the Ohio. It goes goes on and on. There are so many of them that are that are done to this day. And uh, they're all so brutal. <laughs> I think like what makes the... like what makes like a really good like a like a like a torch song like you know you hear a good torch and you're like damn that's really good they like they really love that person like what makes like a good murder ballad? Well, it's 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 you know it's got to be gruesome and brutal. I mean, I think people <laughs> right. sort of need uh, that artistic engagement with with you know with death with violence with uh, brutality. Um, you know, we have that in uh, you know in in horror movies and action movies. You know, and it's, I think it's it's, an, it's important for people to kind of get to engage in that in, in a song, you know, rather than in real life experience. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I just got threatened on the radio. You all heard this. Um, well, we- you know, that's why we have these songs. You know, <laughs> yeah. they, you know so they have songs that just express you know all aspects of, of human experience and yeah. and. Um, you know, and so in these singing these songs and hearing these songs, you're, you're you feel this kind of pathos for the victim, and uh, you want the the perpetrator to be brought to justice. And um, you know, one of my favorite ones, uh, Knoxville Girl, which was uh, most famously recorded by the Leuven Brothers. I mean, part of uh, is that they record that song in such a kind of upbeat. Manner, they're like I met a little girl in Knoxville. And it's very almost kind of like upbeat and happy sounding, like they're they're at a party or something. But it's this gruesome, gruesome murder, and that sort of makes it all the more twisted, right? That it's, you know, I've also there's a great recording of Nick Cave uh, singing Knoxville Girl, which is totally the other way. Oh, he's man. like he seems way into it. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's what you he's like, out. he's like, wish I was there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, can we hear? Uh, what are you going to play for us first? Sure. Well, this is not a murder ballad. No. At okay. All. No. Actually, this this is <laughs> after all this talk about old songs. We're actually going to uh, lead off with the song they recorded. This this is the one song on the record that's not an old traditional number. It's actually by a, uh, a Seattle band called Mother Love Bone, who are they were oh, a, yeah. a proto grunge yeah. band who, who I really love. Yeah, they're wonderful. Yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, and they 
broke up some of their members, went on to form Pearl Jam and, and other bands. Um, anyways, but I thought this would make a good bluegrass song. Okay. It's called Stargazer. Wonderful. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> no murders. No murders. <laughs> <laughs>
So what? When when you were writing this, like, what came first, the the bluegrass song or the rock version? Um. Well, I mean, this. Uh, I'm sorry. When I was arranging it. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, yeah. well, I mean, more than that. Like, when you were putting the two kind of like records together, um, did, did you do all like all the bluegrass versions first, or did you do a bluegrass one and then you did the rock version of uh-huh. that? Like, how did that? How did that come yeah, to be? Well, well, the electric versions uh, kind of started out maybe about eight years ago. I, I had uh, kind of come up with a batch of arrangements. I was at the time playing drums uh, like and guitar and singing at the same time, mm. so sitting down, and my wife was playing bass. So we kind of arranged uh, you know, maybe about six or seven old bluegrass songs for that format, and those, that was sort of the seed of the electric record, and I, I knew mm. I want, you know, what direction I wanted to take that in for the recording uh, to some degree, and then... So uh, then, you know, I picked the, the, the songs that were going to go on each album, and since we, we, did, we recorded the bluegrass record first, mm-hmm. so those got mm-hmm. finished and, and arranged first. And then, of course, once that was set and I knew what that was going to sound like, then the, the ideas started, continued to evolve as far as how to arrange the electric stuff because it was uh, you know, sort of a, a puzzle and a, a project of uh, you know, kind of getting each album to flow differently and really have its own identity that would stand alone you know, without needing the other album, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, making sure each song, uh, you know, was 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 different, and you know, if you did listen to them side by side, there would be some interesting contrast there. Well, can you talk a little bit about the difference in the recording process for the two albums, uh, and just and your approach to each one? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The recording process was was really different for the for the bluegrass record. Uh, we did it all live in a big room uh, over three days. Uh, recorded tape uh, in this in the old first uh, church in Brooklyn. With, um, they have an upper hall there, which is amazing sounding for acoustic music. And so we just did it with four microphones, uh, four tracks, and just you know got everyone there playing together, bleeding into the other mics, and just kind of recording the sound of the room. So the kind of the concept was it was kind of a recorded event. Mm. You know, no. Uh, you know, we didn't really do any overdubs or edits, or we did a few edits, but you know, it's just, it was basically you know a live event. And, and, and then, for those who can't see in the room here, they're all just standing around one mic. This, like, I feel like we just went back to like how radio used to happen with <laughs> yeah. you guys. This is like it's pretty amazing. Yeah, a lot of bluegrass uh, bands will perform, like the whole band will perform around a single condenser mic. You know? Yeah, it's it's. it's inc- I feel blessed. It's yeah, cool. yeah, it's <laughs> we prefer it. Yeah. Um, anyways, but the electric record was done over about three months in my, uh, I did most of it in my home studio and, uh, you know, some of it in other rooms and, um, I played most of the instruments uh, myself. I had, uh, my wife, Jesse Carter played bass on it and, uh, we had a cameo in one song by, uh, Tony Trishka on the banjo, but everything else I just tracked myself. So it was, it was, you know, not at all done live. It was, you know, a layered studio creation and that was kind of part of the, uh, Part of the um, concept there, you know, and kind of creating the contrast is to have the recording processes being very different. Uh, I mean, three days versus three months, you know, that's yeah, <laughs> a bit of a difference. Um, I mean, and for people who who are listening to them side by side, I mean, you don't need to give away all the secrets, but is there like anything or any like particular pairing of tracks that you would point out that you like were were like happy or surprised by like how they sounded side by side? Well, uh, I would. Well, maybe it's a good time to bring up the vinyl release that just came out last week. Uh, the, the double CD, which came out at the end of February, is called Orchids and Violence, and then we just released a vinyl edition called Violence and Orchids. Um, and the, the difference is that it's just the vinyl edition is just one disc, and it takes five songs 
five each from the bluegrass and mm-hmm. the electric discs and then kind of interleaves them so you get the bluegrass oh, wow. version of june apple the electric version of june apple and it's and it's a whole sequence that's kind of designed to sort of highlight the contrast between the tracks so um i, I would encourage you to check that out and <laughs> decide for yourself <laughs> and, and which one is which which is the bluegrass and which is the the electric is it orcas which one's orcas which one's violence uh yeah i i I, I won't uh, commit. The whole thing okay. is just called Orkins and Violence. Okay. You can you can think of that what you will. Maybe while we're like doing a murder ballad, I'll get you to tell me. Uh, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> um, uh, do you want to play another one for us? Sure. Um, I'm going to do a, a song while Larry on bass. We're going to give you a little break. You can uh, go have some whiskey and pizza. <laughs> but uh, Jen Larson and I are going to sing this as a duet and with Dominic on the mandolin. Um, recorded this one uh, on the record. I did as a duet with Sarah Jarose. Um And it's written by... Uh, Whit Kana, who's uh, uh, he and his wife Barbara down in Atlanta, are my musical godparents. Um, so I uh, send this out to to Whit and Barbara. Um, what song called Dark Angel? It's not it's not a murder ballad, but there is death. We're getting there. Involved. Yeah, we're get, yeah, we're yeah. getting there. We're getting close. <laughs> yeah, we've got, we got three songs today. So um, it's called Dark Angel.
<laughs> so uh, records out, vinyls out. Yes, you had some release shows. Yes. What yep. comes this summer? Well, uh, actually, there's one more release show. We're okay. having a vinyl release show this Thursday in in Brooklyn. Uh, at Littlefield, which is in Gowanus on uh, DeGrasse Street, and uh, so that's going to feature both the electric band and the and the bluegrass. Band. I was going to ask, like, how how does the live? Obviously, we get the bluegrass, but how do the the live shows work? Uh, and yeah. how does like the set list work too? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, yeah, for the for the CD release shows we did in, in New, New York uh, back in March, yeah, it was the same as what we're doing this Thursday, which is the, have the bluegrass band play in the first set and the electric band play in the second set. Mm. Um, for this, this since this is the vinyl release show, each band is going to start out playing the five songs that are on the uh, the vinyl release. Oh wow! Um, so at the beginning of each set, you'll get to hear the, the the you know the contrasting versions of those songs. That's incredible. Um, and are, I mean, you're obviously doing double duty, but is anybody else uh, wearing two hats or just two bases? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> on this Thursday on, on playing banjo with me is uh, Tony Trishka, who's you know. Legendary uh, banjo player. So really lucky to have him. And uh, Tony is the only musician other than myself who played on both discs. Mm. He played on one song on each disc, and so he's gonna. We're gonna do that song, uh, "Darling Corey," which actually we're gonna close with today. But um, you'll hear Tony playing on the bluegrass and on the electric versions. But other than that, the, the band is different. Uh, so. Mm. And then, um, are you taking? Are you able to take both out on the road, or do you have to to pick? <laughs> no, it's not really a road. Um, Material there to, to, to travel with with two bands. Um, um, we're doing. I'm playing with the bluegrass band. We're doing Rocky Grass Festival out in Colorado. Oh, great bluegrass festival, and um, and I'm doing a trio tour in June, uh, June 9th, 10th, and 11th uh, with Noam Pekilny on banjo and Brittany Haas on fiddle, who both played on on the record. So that'll be the bluegrass sides. So we're playing. World Cafe in Philadelphia, uh, Cafe 939 in Boston, and the Parlor Room in Northampton, Mass. Um, so, yeah, that's going on the road. And the electric band, which uh, is now called Wax Lion, um, we're doing uh, we're doing mostly uh, New York shows, um, and that's with uh, Jesse Carter on bass and um, Kid Millions on drums, who oh, really? plays stuff. Uh, yeah, you know, oh. Oneida and with oh, uh, yeah. Laurie Anderson and many other. Uh, musicians, uh, he's he's incredible, and so it's been a total joy working with him. If I if I had known him, I, I would have gotten him to play on the record. <laughs> I actually, I actually uh, played drums myself on the record, and uh, and then uh, started working with uh, with with Kid Millions on you know further release shows, and and that uh, it's hopefully gonna kind of uh, be an ongoing uh, project um, under the under the name Wax Lion. Uh, well, before we we have one more song. Uh, kind of final question is from really diving in and approaching these songs in like two very different ways did it give you like any deeper appreciation either for the way the songs are constructed or the subject of the songs themselves well you know know, these songs are very malleable and you know to me it's like it's a way of honoring the songs you know to 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 show that they work in, in different ways um you know, some bluegrass purists might be offended that I'm adding, you know, fuzz pedals and a bunch of weird stuff in the, on the second record. But I would argue that it's it's actually, you know, it's it's out of deep respect of the songs and of the tradition of these songs, you know, to do them two ways. And so, um, you know, you know some, some of them are about something specific like a murder or, or whatever. But a lot of these old songs are, are not really necessarily about anything in particular. 
or they don't need to be. And so I think they're they're made. You know what I think it shows me is that that they're made to just kind of for each performer to kind of put their own uh, you know experience into it. And I think that that again that's why they're around for hundreds of years, and you know some of them will probably still be around 100 years from now people will be doing all sorts of different weird things with them I hope yeah. um, well thanks for coming <laughs> thank all, you for all of us. Um, where thanks. can people find you get the record uh, sign up for tour dates all the good stuff yep well uh, you can get all that information at my website michaeldaves.com uh, D-A-V-E-S um, you can get the, uh, the vinyl and the uh, CD through Nonesuch uh, Records website uh, and you know Amazon iTunes all that stuff can't get the vinyl from iTunes. That's, that's I think, what we yeah, like about vinyl. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, but. <laughs> one trick. Um, well, we want to thank you for coming by. Thank you to Tracy and Josh from Kings County Imperial. Please come to the barbecue on Tuesday. Uh, shout out to Mom, Dad, Ornella, and the whole uh-huh. new Meatball Ace family. And, by, and yeah, uh, Bresnitz. Shout out to Meatball. Shout out to Ahana. Uh-huh. Shout out to the West Coast. Uh, okay. Hello, West Coast. Yeah, I gave up again for uh, Dominic Leslie on the mandolin. Yeah. Jen Larson singing with me and Larry Cook on bass. Uh, uh, great to get to work with these guys. Yeah, thank you for coming by. What are you going to take us out with? Darling Corey. Okay. Yeah. Uh, have a good rest of the week. Yeah, you too. Thank you.
down. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.